Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. How you guys doing? Ah, doing good. Well, so good to see you. Yeah, good to good. see you as well. Yeah. So where, where are you, Shayla? I am in Ian's office. In Indiana? Oh, I'm in Indiana. I'm in a little farm town, Williamsport, Indiana. We're like half an hour from Purdue. I am as far west in the eastern time zone as you can get. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't Indiana so have a have a strange thing where they half of it is yeah. central and half of it is that was growing up. Uh South Bend is always on central time, but just like 10 minutes into Michigan is on Eastern time. And so everything I did as a kid, we had to have like two clocks if we were going into Indiana. I haven't eaten a day. I was uh wanting to get I want to be energized for this conversation. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's like eating a fig newton with peanut butter. <laughs> yeah, we did charcuterie the other night to celebrate Miraculous Ladybug. What's the name of it? It's called Miraculous Ladybug. It's imagine if Sailor Moon and Spider Man had a French baby, and that's oh. the TV show. Oh, I got it perfectly <laughs> then. Yep. <laughs> uh, you guys are actually an elite group. Uh, oh yeah, of women that went through the honors program yeah, there's not a lot of us are there is there three proud. three <laughs> three of you i think had a, i had a lot of ladies that did the work what you guys did that a lot of people didn't want to do they found these presentation at the end quite intimidating oh that was my favorite part <laughs> right <What? laughs> And I, I didn't mean for it to be that way. You know, I was I would have been quite willing to work around that if somebody was just intimidated by it. All right, I'm I'm here today with three very special ladies. Uh Megan Kenyon. Megan graduated from the honors program along with Shayla. Jess, you were in many of my classes. In fact, I think some of the last classes that I may have taught with Megan, right? And with Jonathan Toddy. I remember several classes, it was just the three of us. Yes. Uh, so yep. uh, a, a very special time. And Megan has just completed a major project with Washington University. And is an artist, has always been an artist. D describe a little bit I, I, your art project. Yeah, I feel like most of my project at Central was kind of making space for the arts within theology and showing why we need art, what art allows us to do. Art allows us to have conversations that we have difficulty having without getting into fights because art can meet people on a totally different and unexpected level. Yeah, I feel like that was kind of mostly the scope of my project. And I feel like my presentation, as I remember it, it was like, geez, it was like seven years ago. <laughs> so it's been a while. The study that I was doing, it was on a passage in Mark. Um, it's the couple of verses that are sandwiched in the parable of the sower that everybody always skips over when they preach on that passage. Because Jesus says crazy things like, I'm going to say these things so people will see, but not actually perceive and they'll hear, but they won't actually listen. It's a difficult one to wrestle with. But what you end up coming to find is that part of what he's doing is a very old traditional rabbinical thing to say things that obviously feel wrong, but they make you ask a better question. And I feel like art has the ability, especially within theology, to help us to ask better questions and come to better answers because we didn't ask the questions we've been asking for the last like hundred or something years that just keep getting us into fights. Um, so it, a lot of my paper dealt with how to dodge around the culture war and do more culture care, which at the time I didn't have exactly those words for it, but having since done study, that's a lot of kind of how I've started to see it. So, And maybe what we're about to discuss is a little more aggressive. Uh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> okay. And Shayla, describe a little bit what your project was. 
Oh, well, mine, mine was a really low, low controversial topic about the reality of gender and our bodies, <laughs> um, the nature of the difference between sex and gender and what it means to be a woman in the church and what it means to be a woman as opposed to a man. Just, you know, really, really simple things that we all very obviously agree on then and especially 10 years later. <clears throat> yeah. And I got fired immediately after. <laughs> to be fair, you got fired a couple months before. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So, but, yeah. What I'm going to do, I, Megan, I'd like for you to set this up and describe your project, describing then your journey and inclusive of, of Jess and Shayla. I did some pretty serious bodies of work that led me to think, maybe I should try for the MFA. Like doing theology work was really important in that, but I started to think I need to like actually put some serious time and effort into my practice as an artist. I got a chance to go to a symposium that was at WashU, um, which is Washington University in St. Louis, and got to see some of the art facilities that were there and meet some people. And I had this really wild thing where sitting in this room of people I'd never met before in this big academic institution, like, all these people came up and introduced themselves and talked to me. I had discussions with people I'd never met before and most of whom I've not met since. And I remember walking away from that going, this is the most welcoming space I've ever been in. And I've grown up in church my entire life. And I feel like it was those kinds of moments that were starting to sow little seeds that over the course of 2020, looking at everything that happened with COVID, with George Floyd, with other things that were going on in the world, starting to realize that the conversations the church is having and the conversations the rest of the world is having are not the same conversation. And that what's happening in the church more often is about fear, at least in the white church. It's more often about fear than it is about listening or loving our neighbor. And that started to be really frustrating to have to move forward with. So when I got to Wash U, I had been pretty honest with them from the beginning that I wanted to do something dealing with the church in some fashion. Because I didn't want them to, you know, accept me and then find out. Um, so I'd been very honest, like, I'm a Christian. This is where I come from. I'm still very much practicing. But I also want to critique some of what I'm seeing in the places that I've existed. And they were surprisingly open to that. They kind of thought I was this weird unicorn. That I was both a practicing Christian that wanted to critique in academia and in art. <laughs> and, like, take that job seriously without also chucking my faith. Which, I think there's more people like me than there maybe seems on the surface, but it was kind of a fun, like they thought I was really adorable for most of it. But I think yeah. what you've said here is very significant. And that is what you found in a secular space was people treated you like a human being yeah. and they appreciated the fullness of your humanity. And you, you had it noticed that in fact, that wasn't occurring where it was supposed to be occurring. That, in fact, there had been a diminishment of who you are as a person and what your abilities are as a Christian. I'm holding up two fingers here, quoting <laughs> in the air, air quotes. Uh, that suddenly you realized that the contrast, uh, unfavorable contrast for your lifelong journey as a woman in the church. Am I, have yes. I said that? Have I summed that up correctly? Yes. I think it was a really long journey with a lot of smaller moments leading up to when I went to Wash U that kind of opened my eyes to the world I was given was actually very small and narrow and would not really allow for me to be who God created me to be while also pretending like it was giving me a purpose for my life. Some of that came about because my sister had my first niece in October of 2020. And I had this really weird moment where I realized I, as much as I love my niece, like I don't really want to have kids. Like my calling is to be an artist and having a family could make that very, very difficult. Not that it's impossible, but at least for me, I'm just, the more I thought about it, the more I prayed and kind of listened, it was like, I don't think this is what I'm meant to do. But then I realized I'd been given a worldview that said a woman's major calling in life is to be a wife and a mother. And the question I could not wrestle over then was if my only purpose in life really to like glorify God 
was to be a wife and a mother. And I don't achieve that because that's not been given to me. It's not my calling. Then why on earth did God make me a woman? Because it feels like a waste of his time and my time when I could have served the kingdom so much more effectively if I'd been born a man. And that then became the question I carried into Wash U that led to the project that I've titled The Women's Chapel, um, which is essentially thinking about a space where women can tell their stories with insane amounts of honesty in visual, written, spoken, like things seen, touched, tasted, felt um, that people can experience hopefully in a way that they're not 100% used to. And it would hopefully generate some conversation to get people to think about the ways in which we've allowed how we read the Bible, how we do theology, how we practice in the church to actually oppress people instead of empower and help them, which was not what I thought the church was about. Like I thought the church was supposed to be about encouraging up the body and like being a positive force wherever it was at, like loving our neighbors and loving our enemies. And what I've like consistently found, especially over the last two years, is this fear of losing power that keeps us from actually listening to other people that are different or to people that challenge our preconceived notions about how things are supposed to go because it would require us to do fun things like look at everything you've ever thought and believed and evaluate it piece by piece by piece to determine if it's actually good and true or if it's just some weird tradition that you accepted because somebody you trusted told you that was the truth but maybe it's not actually the truth and so a lot of the project has dealt with my own journey of unlearning stuff that I very much thought was 100% the truth and not losing my faith in the process of that, but also being really honest to wrestle with everything's on the table. Nothing is going to be hidden anymore. Like I want to like peel under every layer and see what's hiding down there because maybe it's not what I was told was actually gospel. But in the process of that, realizing my story is still kind of a limited story because I'm not married and I don't have kids, there's messaging that was given to women that while I heard it, I'd never really applied to me in the same kinds of ways until very recently. I didn't work at a church or in any kind of a ministry situation. So there's stories there that I can't speak to. I'm straight, white, and you know, cis. Like There are all kinds of stories that I obviously can't speak to in those kinds of communities. And so I got the idea from a project I'd done in 2020 uh, to work collaboratively with other people and to really allow other people to kind of tell their own story. My original ideas had been a little bit more limited than that. I was just going to kind of work with friends and maybe do some paintings of people. And over the course of the uh, first semester that I was at WashU, my professors really pushed me to kind of think beyond very small vision and to really engage with People don't need me to tell their story. They might just need me to create a platform for them to do it themselves. And then thinking through how I did that, that sometimes as much as I love painting and I think painting can be so, so important in some of these kinds of conversations, it also is a little bit of a classist thing when you're working with people that may or may not feel artistic. Like if I say, hey, let's work on this art project together and I want you guys in it with me doing this thing, and then I bring out paintbrushes and tubes of paint, people are instantly like, I am not an artist, I cannot do this. But if I say, hey, can you hold a pair of scissors and a glue stick? Like, let's make some collages. Let's like make these poetry things. Let's do some photography projects. Almost everybody now has a cell phone and can take a decent picture on a cell phone. And that I think changed a lot of the scope of the project to allow people to kind of tell their own stories uh, and to not need me to like translate that for anybody. And then, kind of making that shift into doing more photography and collage and like using text and a lot of the things that I do created an immediacy with the work where you see real people telling real stories. Whereas if I had painted them, I feel like it would have been easier to make it abstract. Like that is a person, but it's maybe not the person that said that, if that makes sense. So that's been kind of a lot of the project up to this point. Shayla and Jess are actually really good examples of the two groups that are kind of working with me because I have a home group and an away group. Because I, well, when I originally came up with the idea, I put out a call on Facebook to like all of my personal friends to be like, hey, I am working on a project dealing with women's experiences in the church. If you are a woman and have had an experience in the church, any kind of experience, and you want to work on an art project with me, like send me your email. And I said to everybody that sent me, they're like, hey, I'd be interested. I had like 40 people, I think, that initially reached out. And I sent 
the world's longest explanation email back to them <laughs> with an even longer Google survey for them to fill out. And of the 40, 22 people answered the call. <laughs> and so what I ended up doing from there was I went through all the surveys and kind of created further like follow-up interview questions and then re-interviewed everybody after that. And then kind of over the course of the le- next two years, used a lot of that information that we've had in conversations like individually to direct some of how I'm thinking about the project and where I kind of put my research time. Um, but then it also like led to this kind of bringing everybody into larger group situations. Cause one of the things that started happening, actually Jess is a really good example. I, Jess and I met for coffee to like kind of go over her survey and she made a comment at the end of that first conversation about like, I'm so glad you're talking about this. Like, I feel like nobody is talking about this. And she was like the 10th person I had talked to that week that said that exact same thing. And I was like, there are all kinds of people talking about this, but you don't know each other because I'm the only thing you have in common. So let me bring you all into one space. And so I've been working, it's a little bit harder to do with the online and like out of town group because obviously everybody spread all over the country, different time zones, people got kids, that sort of thing. And so um, done a little bit more like virtual social media kind of stuff with that. Um, but then the in-town group, we've been meeting fairly like once every two or three months, I feel like, because it depends on my school schedule a lot to have kind of these large group, almost like, like I took a lot of um, inspiration from 1970s, like consciousness raising groups where you get everybody together, you throw out a question, you let people tell their story, and then you suddenly realize you have an awful lot in common, even though you thought all of your experiences were very different. And so using that kind of momentum to generate a lot of the work that I've done. So Let me see if I, in my slow uh, <laughs> way, can s- say what you said and see if I'm understanding. That you've yeah. given a place for people who may not otherwise be able to tell their story, to tell their story, for women in the church to tell a story, to allow them to have a voice where, in fact, their voice may not, there may be no place for them to have a voice. And you created a space in which you're not looking for any particular story you're just saying hey this is a place in which you can describe your journey and what you have gathered from it i know this is all simplistic but i'm trying to uh, comprehend (laughs) and what you you've done then is that there is a coherence that is there's a kind of unified story and of course maybe just the fact People are given a platform, a, a, a space, a place is already a key part of what your project is about. Yeah. One of the things that I did on the survey was I had a series of multiple choice questions and then I had some like short answer essay kind of questions. Uh, but one of the questions I had asked everybody was kind of your overall thinking about your overall experiences in church you know, do you feel like you were treated less than because you're a woman? And of the 22 people that actually filled out the survey, I think it was like 18 people said, yes, I've been made to feel less than in a church space over the course of my life, which comes to like 82% of people, which seems statistically super high, especially when you consider that of the group that I polled, they're all still, for the most part, attending church. I think there's only like one or two people that don't really consider themselves Christians anymore and don't currently attend a church. And so the fact that there's all these people that have felt this way, but still are clinging to like, I still deeply believe this and I want to be a part of the kingdom of God. I just would like to be treated like a full individual in the process that I feel like became a huge part of what this project is like developing into is to give those people a chance to say, I shouldn't have to be treated as a second-class citizen because I too am made in the image of God and I too am covered in the blood of Christ and I too am filled with the Holy Spirit and I should be able to use my gifts and fulfill my calling just the same way as anybody else. And so, yeah, that I think has been a lot of the project is to give a space 
Um, it's the weirdest thing about this. And I talk about this a lot in my thesis is it's not a physical space, even though I will eventually have a physical gallery space with the show in it in December. Most of the work I am doing isn't tied down to one physical location. It's kind of all over the place. And the way I started to think about it is the space I've created is within a body of people meeting together, which Shayla, I actually quoted this in the, in my thesis paper. I'd had a conversation with Shayla. I'd sent her a video thinking about this idea of incarnational space or space that is created through bodies being embodied together, like creating a community. It's not held within a physical space of like four walls and a roof, but it's held within the people that meet and share their stories. And Shayla's response back to that was, you're basically just doing church. You're doing what church should have always been. And I was like, yes, yes, that is exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> In other words, part of the thing that you're observing is you are describing people who who recognize they, they don't have a voice. And I'm wondering for many people, many women, but maybe not just women, but, but certainly for women. And the question I had after, you know, I, I was gone, you know, I came back to this culture and, and this thing was a little bit shocking to me. What you're describing, it is a problem that I felt had been aggravated in my absence. And I talked to my wife and she's the same observation. That is the, the sort of thing that has happened in, in the last 20 years, you know, the time I've been gone. Not to say that there wasn't a diminishment of women, but it, it's almost like the, the whole situation was aggravated and has become even worse. And I don't quite know why. But also then the thing that I would observe is that what you're describing is people that are very much aware of what is happening to them. And I'm afraid, I'm, uh, and this is a question, I'm afraid there are many women that don't know that's what's being done to them. It's a kind of gaslighting process in which they may not be able to acknowledge, you know, we felt this because we were coming from another culture and then we were thrust into this institution where my wife, just the oppressiveness of it, eventually was unbearable. I mean, it was just eventually crushing because you know, she was forcibly silenced. But we were kind of at the top end of that institution. If you're at the lower end of the institution, I always got the feeling maybe people are just not aware. And, uh, and maybe this is my stupid male observation. But is that the case, that a lot of women are just uh, accepting a kind of diminishment, assuming that's part of what it means to be a Christian. That's probably true at a certain level, which I think is actually another reason why art is really good here. Art allows us to imagine something we maybe couldn't see before and to sometimes put ourselves in places that we may not have imagined previously. Um, I was actually just talking to somebody about this the other day, the, the concept of imagination and theology and the power of it. And it's something that art brings to the theology conversation in a really special way. Because often I think we're presented with a world and it's hard to imagine a world outside of that. I, I had this conversation with somebody at WashU, who's a visiting artist, and we were talking about my project. He was a man from Africa that was an old school Marxist, which you very rarely meet anymore. Like somebody that's like, like actual Karl Marx level Marxist. And so we're having this amazing conversation and at one point he said something and it dawned on me throughout the course of that conversation. I was part of a subculture, like a sub subculture, like evangelicalism in the Midwest is a subculture underneath of even just American Christianity. And that I had assumed my experience was what everybody was experiencing, but it's not. And it like blew the doors off my world for a second, which interestingly, I think Shayla, when I was at Central and Jess might could probably agree with this as well i had never met somebody that was both a feminist and into jesus simultaneously and it never occurred to me that certain things that were happening or being said or being taught were actually super wrong and problematic because it was never outside of how i'd ever been taught before but then shayla would say to me go that's stupid <laughs> and i would go i trust shayla a lot she's very smart she wouldn't lie to me if she's having a problem with this, maybe I too should be having a problem with this. And why am I not? So 
to be to be clear, I would actually say that is stupid. That is that is a verbatim <laughs> quote. You're not you're not taking out of context. I was in was was it two or three classes with Jess? I'm trying to remember, but I know we were in Foundations of Youth Ministry together, and I remember yes. verbatim saying that's stupid several times. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, Life of Christ three was one of my favorite classes because you sat behind me. And sometimes oh, I no. took notes on your comments because I was like, that's fantastic. I need to remember that forever. I had to sit in the back of that class and I was so disruptive, but I just. <laughs> Honestly, I, like you I whispered couldn't. a lot. I you couldn't. whispered a lot of stuff and it was great. That's what I took notes on was your whispers. <laughs> because I, it, I was so frustrated, but I didn't want to like derail the whole. I mean, I did derail the lectures. <laughs> I did. Like, I'm not going to say that I didn't. I definitely did. But I was I was trying not to as much as I could. But I was just so frustrated that it had to come out. So I had to sit in the back and I had to just mutter it to myself. And I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. There were people that did not. And they made that very clear to me. Apparently, I was being disrespectful, which, yeah, probably. But, you know. That's sometimes it's okay to be disrespectful. Like I think some yeah. of what is it's very trained, I think, just for women in general, especially the further south in America you get, that it's not just the church that has this problem, but women in general are socialized not to make waves and to be polite, just kind of haha, that was funny, and try to move on instead of confronting people with, no, that was super problematic and you're wrong. And that it feels very, very like you got to put on your really big girl panties to like stand up and look somebody in the eye and say, no, that's stupid. And you're doing harm to other people. And it, it shouldn't have been that difficult to create a culture of people that know when to speak up and feel empowered to speak up. But that also, if you do that, you create a group of people that will occasionally call you out on your own crap. And that's really uncomfortable for most leaders. Um, and so, which actually kind of goes to, um, I write a little bit about Jess in the paper and some of her experiences in church spaces, and maybe I'm mischaracterizing this, but I feel like that was part of how things kind of went down at your last job was maybe one too many times of speaking up and saying, Hey, I've got a problem with that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I'm all sorts of ready today to not hold barred because my severance ended today. So I'm allowed to speak. <laughs> I'm allowed to speak. I didn't sign an NDA, but they did threaten my severance. So today ends it. So I've got there you all, go. all the things to say, but that is very oh much how that went down. Um, and then they, they finally found something loose enough. There was like a list of three of us that just would not conform. And we questioned the other two weren't as loud as me because they like had their own things to deal with and they weren't bothered as long as like their own personal ministry status quo could continue. But I like, yeah, I had to shut my mouth sometimes and just let my own status quo and my lane go. But there were just at other times where I was like, come on, like we can, we can do better than this. And why aren't we? And um, I even questioned that before we got our new head pastor and it was just a conversation and a, a dis, you know, we disagreed and we butt heads, but it was a conversation nonetheless. And then when we got our new head pastor. I was silenced. I was hushed or he would quickly turn, turn to the next thing on the docket. And I'm like, but I still have this question. So they, they waited and waited until they finally found something loose enough. And they're like, you got to go. That was my wife's continual refrain is that whenever she would speak up in a meeting, the administrator would say, we're not talking about that now. And it didn't matter if they, you know, in other words, whatever she had to say, it was the equivalent of saying, shut up. You don't have a voice. Yeah, yeah, very much so. My mom had an experience. Her and my dad were having some problems and had gone to see the pastor, and the pastor told her in the course of conversation, well, I really think maybe you just need to learn what it means to be silent and to like really practice silence in the church. And my mom, being a good Christian woman, was kind of like, okay, well, all right, I'll think about it. And like spent the next year and a half trying to figure out what does it mean to be silent in church? And like, 
was just frustrated to the back teeth. And I just so happened, I was taking a class at the time. I don't even remember. Maybe I was having a conversation with Shayla. But I pointed out to her, we were on the phone. I was like, you know, that passage says you're only supposed to be silent. Listen to your own husband. Like, you don't have to listen to somebody else's husband. Like, the passage, like, which now I would interpret that even probably more differently. But at the time, I was like, it just says listen to your own husband. So if dad's not telling you to shut up in church, you don't have to. And she was like, yeah. And she's become the biggest pain in the butt (laughs) to most of the leadership at our church. Yes. And so I think it's those kind of little moments where you give somebody just a moment to say, Hey, that's wrong. And it's okay that you feel wrong about it because it is wrong. And they take it from there. Like, and that was, it's the one thing I love the most about the work that I've been doing both as an artist. And then just as a friend with this group of people is seeing how the conversations that we're having are having an impact on people's lives because stuff comes up. As a matter of fact, we just did a couple of weeks ago, I did a follow-up with some of the people that are here in St. Louis on this Lenten photo challenge that we had done. I had 40 days of prompts that I'd sent out that were kind of based off of like themes that were coming up in my own research and my own life. And then um, just themes I think are kind of particular to the season of Lent. And I let people interpret them any way they want and they could take photos. And so we were having kind of a debrief from that and made these little like books out of certain of the like photos and the stories. And I had everybody go around and essentially read their story that they had made. And of the like seven people gathered, every single person there was dealing with just like intense amounts of grief related to transition. And it became this really amazing opportunity. I realized after the fact, I hadn't told people ahead of time, like, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to approach it. And like, you know, but every single person in that room would tell their story. It was deeply painful. And like you just your heart broke for them and the fact that they're stuck in this mess and we're all still kind of in the mess trying to figure it out but nobody did anything like well if you just do this or if you do that thing like everybody just kind of sat there in silence listening and just kind of letting people have space and then we went to the next person and I was thinking about how how beautiful and wonderful that is and how that should be the sort of thing we're capable of doing in church but we very rarely do Cause that's a moment where silence is a good thing where everybody should have been silent. You just listen to your friend, share something that's deep and painful and you don't feel this need to over spiritualize it or give it a bunch of like, Hey, if you just do this laundry list of things, you can get out of that pit. Sometimes it's just about sitting in the pit with that person and saying, this really sucks. And I'm sorry. Other times it's about, you know, calling out the people who are chucking people in the pit and being like, you know, if you stop this, less people would be getting hurt. Um, I guess actually a question I would love to have Jess and Shayla answer is why you guys agreed to work with me in the first place. Because <laughs> like, I know we've been friends and obviously we're students together at school, but I'm always just a little bit amazed that anybody actually agreed to do this thing with me, especially after I sent out many long and convoluted explanations of what I was doing because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> Honestly, I, um, I didn't know what I was getting into. <laughs> Truly, you you had reached out about like doing, you know, women in the church project. And I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, I'm a woman and I'm in church. Like, this is for me. And like, at the time, I was starting to question like how women's roles fit in the church. But it wasn't like my top priority of like considering things. And so I like becoming a part of this project has really thrown me into like kind of opening my eyes from my own time being gaslit of like, oh, okay, like this, this does matter. And I do need to be thinking about this and just realizing the kind of effect that that had on my life. So truly I, I had no idea what I was getting into, but every step of the process that has been your project, this uh, women's chapel has been like God kind of leading me through my own healing and what I was going through like quite literally at different moments being like, this is exactly what I needed exactly at the right time. So while I didn't know that it was going to be that, I am very grateful that this project has allowed me to like Kim Kardashian, ugly cry my way through trauma. (laughs) It was uh, our October meeting. We had done, we did another, another photo challenge and Jess, had was coming but forgot to send me pictures so i just went through her instagram because she posted most of them on instagram and picked like five that i really liked and printed them out 
And what I didn't know when I picked them is they were all related to the trauma she was experiencing at her church at that time and hadn't really had a lot of time to process because she just heard that her church was going to fire her and they were looking for a reason to fire her. And her therapist was also out of town at the same time. So it was like the perfect storm I created. And then was I had a Dr. Axton moment. We're sitting there and I was like, I don't have tissues. I wasn't expecting people to cry. <laughs> and so fortunately, there's some older ladies in our group who always have tissues in their Was, that, was there a lot, of, a lot of crying in my classes? I... <laughs> there was one time I was, I think it was uh, interviewing for the mission trip and I started crying. And I remember we were in Dr. Axton's office and like, and Dr. Axton's just like, this is the theology office. People don't usually cry in here. <laughs> Although they should be crying because theology yeah. is deadly serious. Oh, man. yeah. yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> There'd be a lot of tears. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that October meetup, you caught me in the right place. Probably. I needed that. <laughs> <laughs> so cool to see the spirit move oh man yeah, i've also Absolutely. not learned my lesson and still always forget to bring kleenex with me so megan and i have been going back and forth on marco polo quite a bit for like what the past like two years i want to yeah. say when we were in school we would always do friday night movie nights and we would just deeply analyze the philosophy behind movies and stuff so that's we, we always are doing that but as previously noted i was pretty vocal at school i think I think people got the wrong idea at school. I think people thought that I was much more angry feminist than I actually am. But maybe comp- maybe just like in that setting, it looked like a lot more angry feminist than I actually am. Like like how color changes based off where you're around. Like I'm actually this kind of pink, but when you're in front of this kind of yellow, that pink looks red. Um, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that might not be the best color picture, but you're the artist, you know. And what I remember is you saying creating a space for women to lament and to celebrate. And I thought about um, the communities of women that I have been a part of, and there's not been a lot of them, but where it it is a different space when it's just women's voices. It's a different space when I I think about like old timey movies and like stories where it's like you have the women all together and they're all doing the same task. Like we're just, you know, we're, we're, we're darning our yarn we're treating this and it's this monotonous, horrible task, but we have each other to do it. And the conversations that happen there and the conversations that happen in the kitchen after the meal, because of course the men are not helping clean up the meal. I mean, they do now, but like, you know, (laughs) some of them the before the meal or after the kids are in bed, just these, these quiet times and these, these very women spaces where you can have these conversations and this stuff can come out. And like, we've talked about like Abuelita theology and like just those types of conversations. And I am, I love Jesus and I am so frustrated with the church. So I have no problem saying (laughs) what I think most of the time I have. I've tried really hard to to not have it come out of a place of anger because I don't want to be angry all the time. That's just exhausting. But anger is an appropriate reaction to the evil that's going on. So that's kind of where I'm at. And I, I was, that was something I wanted to ask is like of the 40 people, only 22 filled it out. So like, does that create like a bias in your research? Because only half of the people actually wanted to do it. <laughs> <laughs> or like only only the people who really had something to say wanted to say something like I don't know. So far, interestingly, one of the things that happened of the 22 people that actually filled out the survey. So there was a few people that had signed up because I said I was talking about women's experiences in the church and they were kind of gung ho about that. But they they were not like most of them had maybe been in church like one time. And so I feel like for them, it wasn't as big of a deal because it wasn't like a featured part of their life per se. Maybe that's a little bit of an unfair to ca- way to characterize it. But I had a couple of people who were spiritual, but not religious that were like, oh, that's cool. Maybe I'll think about it. And then just never came back around. Um, and then I had definitely a few people that had said from the get go, I'm very interested in this project. I do not have the time to commit to it. And so behind those 22 women is probably at least another like 10 or 15 that are all conversation partners with me but are not necessarily reflected specifically in the data. So it's like, we're just meeting for coffee because we're friends. And I tell them a little bit about what I'm doing and they give me some feedback from their own life and experience. And that's incorporated, I suppose, in kind of an anonymous way, but not in like an official standardized way. 
of the 22 people that agreed to work with me, I was actually kind of surprised because I thought I was fairly upfront about this is not always going to be positive about the church. And I am taking, even at that time, even though I was afraid to call myself this, I'm like, I was taking a bit of a feminist kind of an approach to it. I had quite a few people that when they answered questions on the survey, I was like, we're having two different conversations. (laughs) Um, And I think for a lot of those people, uh, they were people who were kind of like me before I went to Central that I didn't know the world was a little bigger than what I had been given. And the moment you start to open that up and people start to see there's a whole other vista we've not seen because we were kept in a corner, you start asking new questions. And I'm not going to say that all of those people are now on the same like kind of deconstruction path maybe that I'm on or that they're even willing to say the same things I'm willing to say now. But I do know for a fact, even the people on the like 22 that like of that 22 that said, oh, I don't think purity culture is a problem. And I don't have a problem with modesty rules. And like, you know, I don't think patriarchy is this big, huge thing. Most of them are now in a place of going, well, personally, it's not like the biggest thing in my life, but I do see that it's a problem. Um, I had a couple of people that had responded that were people that wanted to be wives and mothers that wanted to just stay at home and be a stay at home mom. And like, that was their goal in life. And there's nothing wrong with that goal. And one of the things that a lot of those people have reflected on to me is that when they were initially answering my survey, some of the questions felt a little funny to them because they're like, I don't see why this is a problem. Like, this is a great idea. This is exactly what I want to do with my life. And they started to realize after having conversations later, like, I still very much see value in doing these prescribed traditional women's roles, but I want to do it from a place of liberation and not because I have to. And that changes the entire dynamic then going forward. So yeah, I think there's there's definitely some research bias in there because it's all people I personally knew and like know me. So it's definitely a qualitative study. It's a very small qualitative study of people. I there there may be biases here because of like personal relationship and what people you know might respond thinking I want to say to them or they want to say to me. But but yeah, I think what's been wild is to see how even the people that I think were maybe there were definitely some people that wanted to work with me because they were like, yes, I wanted to talk about how the church is trash and like, it's made my life miserable. And like, let's have that conversation. And then there are people that are a little more middle of the road of like, I want to talk about the things I'm seeing because some of them I don't understand, but some of them I do. And it makes me deeply, deeply concerned. And then there are other people like, there's a problem. I don't see a problem. Like this one thing is a little bit weird, but the rest of it's fine. And over the course of the two years that I've done this project, I've kind of brought everybody, I think, more to the center. There's a little bit less of this, like, just burn it all down. It's all awful. But there's also more of this, these things are problematic and we need to talk about them. And we need to really think about how we got here and what we can do going forward. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't trying to like say it's not legit. I think it's very legit. I was no, just, no. That, that, that was something I was thinking about because like, I obviously know Jess and I know some other people that may or may not have been taking part. And I know that where I'm at is not necessarily where Jess is at. And it's not necessarily where these other people that I know that are in it are at. And part of that is just where we are in this moment, like what church cultures we find ourselves in, what places we find ourselves in. Like, even if you would have just been having this conversation with me like five years ago, it would have been a very different conversation just because of the experiences that I now have. And I am the quasi radical feminist who is also a stay at home mom in a small church in the middle of nowhere. Like I'm this very strange person, (laughs) but also there's (laughs) these other people like, and you know, and, and like you get, you get this, this weird combination of people and that's, that's just how people are. And so trying to see how that all factors in. But yeah, I, I had a feeling there were people that were like, what purity culture is bad. And then other people who were like, yes, burn it all. <laughs> and then yeah. everything in between. In- Interestingly, the one group, there's one group that's not well represented in the study. Cause I did like, tell me your age, tell me your race. I expected to get mostly white people, which at the time I was a tiny bit frustrated about, cause I wanted it to talk more about diversity. But then I realized actually that's more telling than if I'd had a bunch of like, black or latino or like you know asian friends that had also participated and said oh these things that a lot of what we're talking about is a white form of the christian church it's not necessarily 
it's not that some of these things don't happen in other types of churches, but they don't happen in the same kinds of ways. And taking responsibility for the fact that white evangelicalism is a very dominant form of Christianity in America, even though it's like comparatively, it feels like it should be very much smaller, but it's really, really good at like spreading itself all over the place. But yeah, uh, the group that did not really show up in my survey, I've got just a handful of people that are in the like, 35 to 60 range which at first i was a little shocked by but the more i thought about it i was like some of that's because those are all women who are still raising kids working jobs like none of them are retired yet most of them have kids that are in the like late elementary to like going to college kind of age they're also the people that have the most investment still in patriarchal structures in churches often you know, they've worked really long and hard to be able to get to places where they can sort of kind of have a voice. They have kind of a position, you know, a lot of them are a little bit more settled. And a lot of them, I think, maybe are having some of these same thoughts, but they've also been kind of, the longer you're in Christian spaces as a woman and don't make a wave, the more likely you're going to have reiterated some of these teachings and oppressed other people because it's a way to like make sure you can keep what little power you have. And it is really hard to admit you taught somebody something that ruined their life and you need to apologize for that. And then also look at how somebody told you that and ruined your life and that you need to deal with the pain and all of that, you know, that sort of thing. Like deconstruction is not fun. It is not fun to have to look at every single thing in your life and go, what if it's all a lie? And I spent the last 30 years of my life investing in a lie. And what do I do now? It's even tougher when you have to look around and go, I also gave the lie to other people and I can see the damage I did in other people's lives because of that. And so while I'm a little disappointed, I didn't catch more of that age bracket. I kind of have a feeling of why I probably didn't. I think some of it's just like a purely like those people are busy. Like they've got lots of kids, they've got jobs, they've got husbands and houses and like all kinds of things. Like, you know, a lot of this is, I think people don't feel like they have the time and investment to put into it which I've tried to make it as easy as possible for people to participate at whatever level they're capable of. But sometimes it's still just like one more thing added on. And I don't want to ever negate the fact that the emotional toll that this work takes is something you can't always account for when you say, yes, I want to do this. Like Jess kind of even said, like, she's like, I had no idea what this was going to be. I had no idea what this was going to be. <laughs> um, and like that part of it is often the hardest part to deal with. Like, you know, if you get depressed because you start reading and listening to all of this stuff and having these conversations, it gets a lot harder to do the rest of the work. Or if you're always angry and you can't see straight because of how angry you are all the time, you know, like those are the two major emotions I've had throughout all of this. And there have been moments where I've been like basically unable to function because of that. Can imagine if I was like taking care of kids or had a full-time job, you know, those sorts of things. So I know that there's some level of like people just recognizing I do not have the capacity to have this conversation with you. But then I also think there are some people that would never have agreed, even if they had the capacity, because it's too painful to have to admit you believed a lie and you sold the lie to other people because the kind of like repentance work that's going to take, like that's kind of the church's problem in general is we can't let go of this lie that we've told because it would require us to take such a radical step of repentance and acknowledgement. And it might make us look really bad, but the truth is we already look bad. So at least we could look bad and say sorry instead of looking bad and doubling down. So I'm kind of curious, like from Jess and Shayla, um, as we've kind of gone through this project for the last two years, and then just like general life stuff, like what have been maybe kind of the, the highs and lows as you've kind of navigated it and maybe even talk about like, I feel like comfortable in saying you guys are both still very much practicing Christians. Like what's been kind of the like through line for you guys to like, not lose Jesus in the process of like having to deconstruct all the crap around him. Well, I think I have the benefit of more time in it than the, than you two. Just, I'm not sure. Were you raised in the church? Yes. Okay. So I was not officially, I did not start going to church until I was 15. And I, I made that choice for myself. Um, so I didn't go to VBS. I didn't know the song Jesus Loves Me until I was like, I had not heard that song until I was 17 years old. I think I, I can comfortably say I was not raised in church because if you were raised in church, you would know the song Jesus Loves Me. I think that's legit. <laughs> I don't know that that's the best metric, but that's what I'm going with. Um, so I think I have the benefit of 
I wasn't raised in it and I was at times very antagonistic towards the church. Um, you know, as a, as a wee thing, because you can tell I've got my, I've got my blossom Powerpuff Girl necklace on. Uh, so Powerpuff Girls, Sailor Moon, Kim Possible, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Xena Warrior Princess. I was right in that girl power, like seculars, like superheroes all the way. So at no point did I think that women were inferior as a young child. That wasn't something that was kind of ingrained into me. I always did want to be a mom, but that's a very different, I, I didn't have all of this other stuff cashed in with it. And then I actually kind of embraced some of it my freshman year, well, up to my freshman year of college. And then my freshman year of college, I went to a different school. I went to Great Lakes Christian College in Lansing, Michigan, which I have no problem saying was definitely more liberal than Central Christian College of the Bible at the time. I don't know where they are at now. And even there, just like starting to have the questions of, okay, so what does it mean to be the weaker vessel? And what does that actually entail? And Ian, uh, my husband and I, we we met there. And so we would have long conversations about it. And our perspective has changed as we've aged and as our relationship has developed. But just all of these things, like, I think I have the benefit of I have spent more time being angry <laughs> and working through this. The, the project that I, a lot of the projects that I did um, in my undergrad were uh, women's role in the church, uh, the different models of understanding womanhood. So like for my paper, what I did was I talked about um, hierarchalism, complementarianism, and egalitarianism, and how these things that function, that are supposed to function as like relationship rules in the church actually function as gender rules and how they become a way that we understand not only what does it mean to be a woman in a relationship, but what does it mean to be a woman in general? and how gender works and also like so i've i've been in this for a long time um which is why i can say like i just don't want to be angry anymore i think anger is a very appropriate response to it but you just you can't be angry all the time it's you can be angry for like 4 years and then at that point it, it, you just get burned out and so there has to be a way that you can i don't know what the best way to say this i don't want to say tune it out because i don't ever want to tune out the suffering of, of sisters. I don't want to do that. But I also know that there is a limit to what I can carry. And so I will go through seasons where I will get um, a bit angstier and I will go through seasons where I'm like, you know what? I need to, I need to recalibrate my Pinterest feed. We are going to look up Hello Kitty. And <laughs> because I can't handle any more of your suggestions of this stuff, I, I I need to limit what I'm seeing right now because I I need a space to to process it, and so there's there's that part of it. So I've I've had my 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 spouts of being angry. I still get angry. I am still mad, but I am very blessed at the moment that I am I am in a church space. I am in a church space where I am a valued teacher. I am both allowed and encouraged to, to preach on occasion. Teenage girls preach here. We have women passing out communion. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm the one that does the nursery, but I'm also the only one that has kids. And I'm the one that's reading the sermons all week long because my husband's the preacher and I'm also helping write them on occasion. So if there's somebody who's not going to hear the sermon, it's me. And that's the, you were kind of talking about that difference of making that choice out of liberation. Like I have made that choice because I know I am a spiritually mature enough person. I am already getting this teaching throughout the week. So I have made that choice for myself. It is not something that has been foisted upon me. It is something that they have actively tried to make sure doesn't happen to me. So I am in a very unique space. I have never been in a church like this before. So I'm really enjoying that. (laughs) But I also, that was not the norm. Most of my church experience before this has been we'll say less positive. And so the thorough line for me has been the idea of separating Jesus from his followers is is a simple one for me. The idea that people can get something so wrong. And I know that I've gotten things wrong. I know that I have not always represented Jesus well. And so I, I can take that truth and I can hold on to it and be like, okay, so these are people who I will say in general, want to do what is right, but have gotten way off base on what what right and what good is. 
but God didn't give up on me. And as long as they are still pursuing him, he's not going to give up on them. And we can, we can move forward because Jesus's disciples didn't get it. And the people surrounding him didn't get it. So I think the, like the fact that it is so present in scripture that he can be right there in your face and the kingdom is here and people can be just so like missing the point right there in his presence. I, that has been a big encouragement to me when we're in spaces where it's like, okay, this is very clearly what the church is supposed to be. And this is very clearly not what the church is yet. And we need to get there. Like that is what we're supposed to be doing. And I'm, I'm a naturally pretty critical person anyway. Like I have a hard time complimenting, not because I don't see the good things, but because I'm so fixated on how things can be better. And that comes through a lot in the fact that I'm constantly mumbling to myself in lock three or, you know, other, other things. It's like, like, no, like if we're teaching about, you know, if we're teaching the end of the life of Jesus, we should maybe get to the resurrection. That's kind of the whole purpose of our faith. I think that was my biggest gripe with that class, but I, I am sure of who God is and that he loves me and that he wants me. And I am sure that who I am right now is not who he wants me to be because I know that I can be better. And I know that what I would even think is better is not necessarily even what he is picturing when he thinks of what I can be and the person that he wants me to become and that he made me to become. Um, but that he is here and he is, he is working towards it. So like I, I have the benefit of I am in a very healthy church space right now. I haven't always been, but I am, I am relishing that because you never know how long that's going to last. I have no problem with saying other people suck and acknowledging that I suck and that Jesus doesn't. And Jesus has always been working with sucky people. And so the results are often reflect that, (laughs) but you know, it's really great when you can be in a church community where you can talk like I do about things and you can say, sometimes people just suck and they're not like, Oh, Oh no. She said suck. Doesn't she know that that's like a sexual innuendo? And I'm like, okay, no, not when I'm going to war. Like that doesn't happen. They're just like, ah, oh, Shayla, she's so, she's so quirky. We love her. So that's, that's where I'm at. But you know, how about you, Jess? How about you? Oh gosh. I, so I did grow up in church and I've always been on that like weird line of like, I want to know everything that I can. I've always had so many questions. Like I was arguing like, some very basic theology in preschool because someone once said like someone told me at some point in preschool like it was this kid who was like god and jesus are two different people or are the same person they're literally the same person that's just his different nicknames and i was like no you're not correct (laughs) and so i've always been that person to like have be so up in arms of like i'm ready to learn all that i can and like just give me more but i was very much taught to ride that line. Like if you're doubting too much, then your faith gets doubted. Are you really faithful? And that was very much the space that I grew up in. So when I felt the call to ministry and I was like, youth ministry is what I want to do. I I love this. I love what this is about. Um, I was 16 years old and I was like, I see the value in this. And hopefully I don't grow up to a point where I just want to hang out with my peers. I really want this to be my calling. And instead of pouring into me, a lot of people were, including my parents were like, yeah, but the Bible says you can't be over, you know, men. So I don't think that you can be in that space. And I bought it because I was so trained up to be towing the line of asking questions, but staying in my place. And I didn't know any different. So I was super bummed and was like, can't I push back like a little bit? Like, and I just kept meeting that wall coming up into my freshman year at central. And I was like, okay, you know, I can still be helpful to teens if I go into Christian counseling. And so I came into central and I was heading towards Christian counseling. And I like had two different kinds of experiences at central. The first half being like, here's how, you can find your questions on your own. Cause I still had tons of questions, but I was so afraid of asking. And so that first half of my time at central, I was learning 
here's how you can search your own answers so you don't have to rely on others, especially if they're going to tell you the wrong thing. Because that had also been something in my past where it's like I asked some questions and now look back and recognize like you took the Bible way out of context to give me the answer you wanted to give me. Honestly, like I was in such a space of diving in myself and like it's kind of when I started separating from what I was taught growing up and I was like, okay, I'm seeing things in a new light. You know, youth ministry can be for me. And I still wasn't angry because I was like, okay, I just misunderstood these things. It wasn't that I was taught something that was wrong. It was I misunderstood and still not really seeing the issues. There was just, I had to sign up for, you know, a course that everyone had to take. Everyone had to take basic biblical theology. And one of the classes was filled up for the stupid people. And I got tossed into a smart people class and it like, I was not an honor student, but after that, I was like, I'm taking nothing less than these classes with Dr. Axton because I'm learning so much. But honestly, like being, being in those classes with everyone who was like so much more knowledgeable, it taught me to ask the right questions and to not let people, let my questions be squelched. And because of being in those courses, I got to meet all these people who are already questioning things where I got to see like, kind of like what you were saying, like, I didn't realize that this was a problem, which is why, and I'm not like, totally not like, it's funny, but honestly, like learned so much from Shayla's quips behind me, where I was like, I did not even realize that that was a problem. And from the, you know, the honors program and from meeting so many cool people, like, and I've told this uh, to Megan, I've told this to your face and Caitlin Frazier, where I've been like, you guys have ruined my life on multiple occasions in the absolute best way, because I just soak up the fact that you guys have already like asked the right questions and are far beyond my own deconstruction and trying to figure out what is actual truth, not truth painted by, you know, just what I was told my whole life that I'm now in my own, like, I, I get to question these things. And what's been super great for me to realize is Jesus can handle that. (laughs) I never knew that growing up. I never knew that I could ask questions and that Jesus could handle that. And I, that is one of my favorite things to teach teenagers is your questions are fine. Jesus can handle it as long as you're seeking for answers, because that was so liberating to me. And I needed to know that as a teenager and I was not told. So for me, this is an extra step in my worship to Jesus. I have no question about my faith in all of this because Jesus can handle it. He's so much bigger. And so I get to ask questions and kick up like, well, what if this, you know, what if I believe this instead of this and just keep hearing back from the spirit? Like, that's fine. As long as you follow me, which is so liberating. That's the one piece of power that I feel like gets taken away from congregations because we are taught to kind of feed into the pastor's hands, which I don't know how that translates to Paul's like, you should be eating meat and not milk. And I'm like, I don't know how that got lost in translation, but then even more so of like women, because a lot of times I learn by doing, I'm very hands-on, but if women aren't allowed to be in leadership spaces, those who learn by doing, how are they supposed to learn? And that's like kind of my biggest qualm where it's like, we have to be in these spaces to ask questions which women are not getting the opportunity to do. And that's where my anger kind of comes in because I see this very much as like, I'm seeing the space that teenagers are growing up into right now. They're, they can't really see much past like, you know, two feet in front of their nose, but they're going to their, their realm of seeing the world is about to expand. And I want this to be a better space for them to have that freedom that we're supposed to have in Christ. And that's where my anger comes in. And it too gets really exhausting. And I try really hard not to, especially in this zone of, I have teenagers who are watching me, parents that I've partnered with, 
I've been wrongfully fired and everyone is watching me. So I can't have a meltdown. I can't yell and scream like I want to. I can't set the church on fire because that's arson and it's illegal. So how, how am I supposed to act right now? So it's, it's been a difficult challenge, but there's so much freedom in what Christ has given me as like just questioning and searching and being able to be angry and yell and cuss and work through everything and cry in front of people that I've never met before. And he's with me every step of the way. So honestly, like asking the questions and having this fire and being angry at people in the church has only fed my faith. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.